From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll hear from a black farmer in Mequon about the land access challenges facing young farmers of color. Our monthly with Mosley conversation explores the legacy of the Buffalo Soldiers, who were our nation's first park rangers. And they said, well, we have these African-American soldiers who have just become professional soldiers. Let's have them monitor the parks. And that's how it all started. Then we'll dig into archives from the Milwaukee Road to learn how the local railroad company encouraged tourism to national parks out west. The Milwaukee Road was at a disadvantage to begin with because they were so far from the park. So what they decided to do was build a very nice luxurious hotel that was in a town called Salesville, which later changed its name to the Gallatin Gateway. Plus, learn about new restaurants in Milwaukee and some old favorites that have recently closed. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski, thanks for joining us. Today we mark the birthday of the national park system through learning about the Buffalo Soldiers that built the infrastructure to our major public lands, and how the Milwaukee Road Company encouraged Midwesterners to travel out west. We'll start with this. One of the biggest challenges for young farmers is accessing land. For farmers of color, the barriers are even higher. Advocates see a chance to change that in the next Farm Bill, the massive package of legislation that sets the stage for food and farming every five years. The current bill expires in September. Marty Scales is a black farmer and part of the One Million Acres campaign led by the National Young Farmers Coalition. The campaign is calling on Congress to invest in land access solutions. Scales and his wife, Amy Kroll, run Full Circle Healing Farm through the Fondy Farm Project's incubator program at the Mequon Nature Preserve. WUWM's Lena Tran spoke with Scales and Kroll about their farming operation and what equitable land access looks like to them. Well, can you just describe, I guess, what your vision is for this farm? Like, what are y'all doing here when you talk about Full Circle Healing? We really are focusing on growing um, nutrient-dense food and being a, a safe space for marginalized communities and for anyone who doesn't feel safe in the suburbs like this. Uh, the suburbs, for some, feel safe, and for everyone else, they feel very unsafe. We want to bring people out there and dispel that myth, like, if you have more trees than people, it's, it's dangerous. I really hope to see way more people of color, our LGBTQ community, converge on the more rural areas and kind of take some of that land back and take the power of growing food and medicines. The larger vision is much bigger. We want to do much more, and we want to do something almost like an incubator. We want to lessen the barriers, and the barriers are many when it comes to growing your own food, whether it's land, capital, or even psychologically um, choosing to grow food. Which is part of why I came to you. I learned about your involvement with the One Million Acres campaign and the Young Farmers Project. So can you talk about your involvement with that campaign and you know, what y'all are asking for leading up to this next farm bill? As far as the One Million Acres campaign, they really want to move a million acres over the next decade to young and BIPOC farmers specifically. And ways they want to do that is focusing on tax breaks for people that move their land from they want to retire and they they sell their land to young or BIPOC farmers. They want to look at incentivizing in other ways. They want to really focus on the USDA and uh, FSA and putting people in place that have power to enforce rules and 
penalties and then also uh, get some kind of national reporting so we can see how the FSA is doing nationally and also de-incentivizing big ag. The vast majority of all subsidies go to those very large companies and that incentivizes them to gobble up even more land and makes it even more difficult for the small farmers to compete. Just on a sense of scale, if you're growing 17,000 pounds of carrots, you can still make money and charge way less than those who are growing 200 pounds of carrots. And then looking at the government itself and seeing about government-owned land and how that can be moved into um, either nonprofits that work specifically and are run by BIPOC people in communities and moving that land into to trust like that, uh, but not to traditional trust, but trust that, that are by us and for us. Um, so it's really, it's really opening people's eyes and forcing the government to be better because it will not do it by itself. Which we've seen with the USDA, That's the Black right. Farmer Loan yeah. Relief mm, yeah. or Debt Relief. Yep, which, which got held up in the courts due to um, primarily white farmers and it discriminated against them because they were white. It got held up in the court and then with the Inflation Reduction Act, that part just got rescinded completely. So this is where I split with uh, the one million acres. Um, I'm uninterested in compromising in that way. But I'm not a lobbyist. I'm more like, okay, an advocate. Uh, so that's where we split. Like, I'm not interested in compromising. The whole time we've been here, we've been compromising, but it hasn't been equal. At some point, we have to stop the compromising, especially before the conversation even happens. So for me, that's where I... I veer off like, okay, um, you can think about what compromise looks like. I'm really focusing on asking for everything and a little bit more and making them say no. And then we can think about where the compromise is. If you start off compromising, you'll never get what you want. And I think that that is the intention for those who don't want to see policy that actually looks at equality when it comes to, to BIPOC folks, to, to women-owned things, and to the LGBTQ communities. I think they, they intend to compromise us out of all of our goals because we have historically always started off on the losing end and being willing to compromise. What does justice look like to you? Like, what do you want for yourself? Well, it would mean that there are no foreseeable barriers to entry to anyone of color or a LGBTQ person or a specifically woman-owned farm because everyone but white men have not been served well by these programs, including the folks that they're specific programs for. Mm-hmm. What justice looks like to me is the government doing everything in its power to empower those people that they have done historically for white men. And that's going to look unfair to white men. But also, I'm unwilling to compromise in that. I want it to look unfair to you. That's okay. Then once you see that, that we are actually moving forward, you will see how you were able to get where you were. Mm-hmm. You can't say pull yourself up by your bootstrap when you, you have generational wealth or generational ownership of land. And then you look at the next person who's starting off today. It doesn't make any sense. But that has been the argument. And I, I, we need more people that are willing to say it out loud, regardless of how it makes white men feel. Well, Especially I appreciate wealthy you white men. Yeah. yeah. How did y'all come to start this 
I mean, I'm sure it was a huge leap, right? I'll let Amy tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm a licensed therapist, and Martes was going to school for IT, and then one day he just came home, and he was like, we need to talk. I think I want to be a farmer. And I was like, what? <laughs> so it was a, it was a big change. Um, at that point we were in a place where I could work full time and he could pursue farming. So I encouraged him to go back to where we both had met with the Racine Dominicans to the Eco Justice Center in Racine and get his hands kind of in the soil, learn if it was something he even wanted to do. So he, he did that and loved it and got hired on for the summer there. You know, I slowly started joining him. I had wanted to be a farmer when I was younger and everybody was discouraged me from it. They're like, it's no money. It's exhausting. It's, you know, there's, there's no reason to pursue that. So, you know, I kind of let that dream die. So we both continued our careers um, that we were currently doing and then started farming when we found Fondy uh, Farm, the incubator farm, we started with a fourth of an acre and then slowly moved our way up to two acres. And then I quit my job two years ago uh, so we could invest in Full Circle Healing Farm and uh, the Martese's pretty part-time at his other place of employment. So this is pretty much our livelihood on top of our healing center, which is also part of our mission as well. Our overall goals, you know, our and, and mission is to really heal of mind, body, and spirit, and to incorporate all that. That really starts with the food you're eating and the earth that we are living in. For us, it's more than just growing food and eating good food. We know that this is life-preserving to other people. You know, I, I'm black. A lot of our health issues stem from what we eat, right? So if we can get people to, to eat more of this stuff that grows naturally out of the ground, especially if it's not sprayed with pesticides and chemicals and less of the stuff that, that's convenient, that, you know, in our community, that's, that's what's right there, we can extend lives. We can increase the quality of life. Right, so that, that right there, what we don't get financially, we get knowing, which we don't get much financially, but we get knowing that we are helping to establish a healthier lifestyle for someone that may actually help them to live better. Mm -hmm. we, we, we need to we, make money, yeah. though, but, but <laughs> it, it is important, you know, and we do make money. We just, we have to continue to do other things as well mm -hmm. because, again, we don't own land. And you see a lot of these larger farms where that's all they do, um, that was generations being built. If you go all the way back to even the homestead act, they didn't pay for that land. They dispossessed the land from uh, indigenous folks. And the government incentivized it and said, if you can stay there for five years, that's yours. But if I was to turn around and say, okay, we were supposed to get that 40 acres and a mule, what's up? Or if I was to even say, okay, why don't we go to, to a, a quote-unquote wild space, and if we can stay there, it's ours, that would be a straight-up no. But you see, a lot of these big farms, that's exactly how they started. And then they can use places like the USDA to have their kids get loans to buy the land that they would have inherited anyway, and then whatever the parent doesn't spend by the time that they, they die, that money is then inherited, and it continues. That's, that's generational wealth. We have been left out of that conversation. Again, there's, there's deep history that's uncomfortable, and I'm frustrated that we're not having those frank conversations because when, when you get all these things put out there, then the people who are against it, they don't have a leg to stand on. Mm -hmm. And then that also puts the government on the hot seat. 
I, I know that the government doesn't want to talk about this because then reparations come in, into play. And I'm not just talking about black folks. I'm not just talking about indigenous folks. I'm also talking about women and uh, LGBTQ. Like the government has done us all a disservice. There hasn't been any sort of true, let's come to the table and talk about what we did, apologize for what we did, and put policies in place so we never do it again. That was WUWM's Lena Tran speaking with Martise Scales and Amy Kroll of Full Circle Healing Farm. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast, download, and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. A new sushi spot just opened up in Bayview that's more than a decade in the making. We'll learn more with food writer Lori Frederick as we explore some of Milwaukee's newest restaurants and learn about some old favorites that have closed. But first, we'll learn about the Buffalo Soldiers and their vital role in building the foundation of America's National Park Service. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nolikowski. On August 25th, the National Park Service celebrated its 107th birthday. Since its founding in 1916, the national park system has grown to more than 400 national parks. However, Yellowstone National Park was established in 1872, well before there was even a park service. So, management of the park fell to the Secretary of the Interior, which employed the U.S. Army, specifically its black regiments, to help manage and protect the land. These men were also known as Buffalo Soldiers, and about 500 of them served in Yosemite, Sequoia, and General Grant National Parks, playing a huge role in building the infrastructure we still see today. To learn more about the Buffalo Soldiers and their legacy, I'm joined by Derek Mosley, the director of Marquette University Law School's Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education. He begins by explaining what led to the Buffalo Soldier Regiments. So at the end of the Civil War, there were 180,000 African-Americans who had served uh, with the Union Army. And although they had served with the Union Army, they were not allowed to serve during peacetime. And since they couldn't serve during peacetime, all that changed in 1866 when they came up with the Army uh, Reorganization Act, which actually made Black soldiers able to serve as full-time professional soldiers. And when they did that, they created four units, the uh, 9th Cavalry, the 10th Cavalry, the 24th Infantry, and the 25th Infantry Divisions. Most people are familiar with their name. You mentioned it, the Buffalo Soldiers, which was a name that was given to them by our Native populations because they thought that these soldiers, their hair looked exactly like the tuft of hair between the the antlers of buffalo. That curly hair between the antlers of buffalo were uh, similar to the hair of the buffalo soldiers, so hence the name buffalo soldiers. The national parks were started in 1872, the first one being Yellowstone. And you start a national park, but you don't start a national park service. So what happened? Of course, you know, farmers had their 
their cattle grazed on the national park and uh, sheep were grazing in the national park and people were tearing, uh, cutting down trees and they were panning for gold and all these things, uh, poaching, uh, what, deer, elk, buffalo, bison, beaver, everything. And so they had to come up with a way to police the parks, basically. The only organization that had the mobility and the actual logistics to do this was the United States Army. And they said, well, we have these uh, African-American soldiers who have just become professional soldiers. Let's have them monitor the parks. And that's how it all started. That's how we had the Black uh, soldiers, also known as the Buffalo Soldiers, become our first park rangers, even before the park service was even started. Right. So you mentioned some of the problems people were trying to manage and face as they were expanding and creating parks. So can you share some of the job duties that the Buffalo Soldiers had as park rangers? Yeah. So the um, they had a, a lot of duties. This is what they did. So one, they created the roads and other infrastructures that you see in the park. Uh, they created the trail that everybody travels, which was a trail, but now is a road that everybody travels through uh, Sequoia uh, National Park, the giant forest, you know, the giant redwoods, the road that you go along or that you walk along. Um, that was created by the Buffalo Soldiers. They created the trail that takes you all the way up to Mount Whitney, which to me is amazing, right? Because Mount Whitney is the largest of the uh, peaks in the contiguous United States. So they created that trail that went all the way up there. Um, they were responsible for patrolling uh poachers, make sure poachers weren't killing the elk, the deer, the beaver, the bison. Also, those people were trying to search for gold. So they're damaging the natural pristine uh, landscape by trying to find gold. Uh, they're cutting down timber to build their own log cabins on their land because there was all this timber, all these trees, and no one was uh, patrolling them. So they were responsible for that. And, you know, a piece of it that people aren't aware of is that uh, the 25th Infantry were a bicycle unit. And a lot of people weren't really familiar with that. So the Army wanted to see if bicycles could be used in place of horses. Horses were expensive, right? You had to feed them, you had to water them, you had to house them. So they said, what if we use bikes uh, in warfare? And so they used the 25th Infantry to start these bicycle corps. And the bicycle corps became part of the park service. They would ride bikes throughout the park service and um, maintain order. The, the thing for me, Audrey, is, you know, this is still the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s. And so the perception of African-Americans at that time by whites was that they were still kind of like second class citizens. So I just think of this park rangers, right, who are there, who are responsible for stopping people from poaching. And now you have people with guns that you walk upon and say, hey, you can't, a black man in this society says, hey, you can't uh poach these animals that had to be a really delicate balance they had to walk there but what they did was phenomenal for our country and we know very little we don't you don't learn about it really in history books and so i just wanted to bring that to attention because there's so much more that they're responsible for and in the very you know complex history and, and the negative history that we have in the u.s of expanding west of the whole idea of manifest destiny um the buffalo soldiers also had kind of this as you said it was like a delicate role so what they had to do in relationship as soldiers serving their government and then it was what they do for the parks but then it was also at times they also had to clear out native tribes as well so there's this violent aspect to their jobs Absolutely. And that, that came from the uh, Indian Wars as well. They had also been known 
because they had a history of uh, being able to speak a lot of native languages because a lot of African-Americans, when they escaped slavery, became entrenched in some native population so they could speak the language. And they were also used, as you're absolutely right, to to move off our native and indigenous population off of their lands as we started to move west. So it was... Um, you know, they had a good history with the national parks, but then a bad history as far as American history is concerned about our indigenous and native populations. Most of the Buffalo soldiers were led by white officers, captains, but some were led by black Americans as well. One person in particular was Captain Charles Young. He commanded Troop L of the 9th Cavalry and was the highest ranking black officer in the army at the time. And later, he was also named acting superintendent of Sequoia National Park, also the first black person to hold that position. Uh, Let's talk about him a little bit. He's a great person in the history of the Buffalo soldiers. Absolutely. Not to mention he was also the third African-American graduate of West Point. So Charles Young uh, was really instrumental in Sequoia National Park. I mean, all those things we just mentioned, right? So the the roads that go through the giant forest, the roads all the way up to Mount Whitney, the peak of Mount Whitney, that would have never happened if it wasn't for Charles Young. He was the one who was the the, um, catalyst behind all those things happening. He was an ecologist sort of by trade and he was uh he loved nature and the thing about Charles Young which is probably the thing that uh, most people don't talk about the most is that he loved being a soldier and he took a lot of pride in being a soldier so whenever you hear people talk about Charles Young his uniform was always pressed he was always looking the part of a soldier and he demanded that um his unit look the same way And so they went a long way into improving the relations between blacks and whites out West because he had these, this unit of African-American soldiers, these Buffalo soldiers who, when whites saw them, they commanded a lot of respect, right? They, they looked good. Their uniforms were pressed. They knew what they were doing and um, they were providing a service. So he goes a long way into all the things that we just talked about as far as the national park, before there was a national park service, before all that started, he was responsible for putting those things into place. So as we look back on the role the Buffalo Soldiers played in the national parks, you know, we're talking about legacy and contributions. And yet there's still this misperception that is longstanding, especially in outdoors and recreation. It's a very white space, but the very places that mostly white people enjoy were built by these black soldiers. How do you want the legacy to be viewed and to really make us think differently about like how we enjoy our outdoor spaces? So there's a person that people should become familiar with. Uh, He's a national park ranger. His name is Shelton Johnson. And Shelton Johnson is actually responsible for us knowing anything about the um, Buffalo soldiers being the first park rangers. In fact, Shelton is assigned to Yosemite. And he actually, um, when he reports to work, he actually dresses the part of a Buffalo soldier. So he wears the same exact uniform and he stops and talks to people that go through and he tells that legacy. He always says that we were the first, we being uh, African-Americans were the first black park rangers, but we were the least to take advantage of the outside spaces. So he's responsible for doing a lot of podcasts. He's responsible for doing a lot of videos on YouTube to get black citizens to know about their role when it comes to the national parks. And he is a phenomenal. I don't know if you had an opportunity, Audrey, to watch any of his videos or to see him on being interviewed, but he takes a lot of pride in our history. And I say our history because it is our history. It's not just black history. It's American history. And he takes a lot of pride in the role that uh, African-Americans 
played when it comes to the expansion out to the West and especially to those outdoor spaces, because you were right. Those spaces we typically view to be uh, white spaces, but I think with the work of Ranger Johnson, things are starting to change a little bit. I'll be honest. I grew up in Chicago and I didn't do a lot of, well, let me just say, I didn't do any camping. All right. So, and it wasn't until I moved to Wisconsin that I started to do a lot of camping. And it's one of the spaces that I, I completely enjoy. It's, you know, being one with nature, being with the land, you know, sleeping outside, all of those things. I just think it's important. And I, I really want to give a shout out to uh, uh, Ranger Johnson just for that, because he made it very important. He's also really responsible for African-American youth in urban areas joining the Young Rangers program. So these young people are going to Sequoia or going to Yellowstone or going to Yosemite and they are becoming park rangers for the summer. And I think that's, that goes a long way, not only to just uh, better themselves, right, to see another part of the country they probably wouldn't have seen, but also for them to be seen by other people and knowing that these aren't these are spaces for all of us. Absolutely. Well, Derek, thank you so much for joining me today to share more. I loved our conversation. Oh, thank you. And thank you for letting me share uh, the story of the Buffalo Soldier. Buffalo Soldier, Derek Mosley is the director of Marquette University Law School's Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education. You can explore past monthly with Mosley conversations at wuwm.com. Since our national parks were established, they have drawn thousands of visitors to these public lands. When they were first founded, most people couldn't get to them without taking a train at least part of the way. Even though Wisconsin isn't home to a national park, we did have a role in driving some tourism out west. The Milwaukee Road was a local railroad company who, like many others at the time, tried to monopolize increased travel to national parks. For August's Book of the Month series with the Milwaukee Public Library, we're actually exploring a part of a local collection. I went to meet Special Collections Librarian Greg Comley at Central Library, where he pulled documents from the Milwaukee Road collection, and he starts by explaining his work with it. So I spend the majority of my day uh, answering questions and processing the Milwaukee Road collection. We received this collection in the early 80s directly from the Milwaukee Road. Their idea before they went bankrupt was to have a place to preserve uh, all of their historical materials. So it is by far one of our biggest collections. There's well over 50,000 engineering architectural drawings 18,000 plus photographs and enough boxes to fill your grandmother's house. <laughs> so this month we're celebrating the anniversary of the national park systems in the U.S. for our book of the month. And while Milwaukee nor Wisconsin has a national park, we did have a role in encouraging people to go out to the parks and out west in general. So can you share a bit about the Milwaukee Road and its role in doing that? Sure. So first, I'll just start with a little bit of background on railroads and national parks uh, in general. Uh, railroads uh, have always had a unique relationship with national parks long before the National Park Service was even established in 1916. So, for instance, in Yellowstone, the Northern Pacific had already established a line from Livingston to Cinnabar in 1883. Yellowstone ended up having five railroads that connected to its borders, one being the Milwaukee Road. 
but we see this all across the country where railroads are capitalizing on their closeness to national parks and they use it in a way not only to drum up passenger traffic because they care about the bottom dollar, uh, but they also have this unique relationship in with the national parks on both promoting them and actively uh, encouraging the public to use them, which makes us have even better national parks. So they have this kind of mutually beneficial relationship in encouraging people to use the rails and then see the parks. So what did Milwaukee travel with railroads look like during this time? So the Milwaukee Road, when it first began, was the Milwaukee and Waukesha. It had like 20 different names. It started here in Milwaukee and its first line was completed to Waukesha in 1850. Milwaukee, you know, has always been the heart of the railroad, but like most other railroads in the country, Chicago um, is the terminus uh, of the railroad. So, you know, in the late 1800s, it became the Chicago-Milwaukee-St. Paul Railroad, and later the Chicago, when they completed their Pacific Line, it was the Chicago-Milwaukee St. Paul Pacific Railroad Company, which is a, a really big mouthful. Uh, so everyone calls it the Milwaukee Road, which was never its official name, but like it's it's kind of like shortened version, right? So uh, we had a beautiful passenger station here in Milwaukee, but traffic just went through. Of course it stopped. At some points there was like 26, 27 passenger trains going through Milwaukee a day. Um, so we always say that Milwaukee is the heart of the railroad because this is where it had its gigantic shops. So the, Milwaukee is the heart of the railroad, Chicago is the brains. So normally what would happen is you would either take a train from anywhere on the line, which was, uh, for the passenger trains, it was called the Olympian, or they had the Columbian. The Olympian was like the express train, the Columbian stopped at more places. But you would take this from either the, the Great Lakes area or the West Coast, and you would stop at Three Forks, Montana. And then in originally in 1926, when they started marketing this whole thing, you would get, then get on a bus at Three Forks, Montana. And they had some really like, not so much like a bus, but more like an elongated station wagon <laughs> that could fit people. Yeah. And then you would travel the nearly 100 miles to the park border. And this is 1926. So uh, imagine the roads in 1926. Uh, bumpy. Not a comfortable ride, yeah. Right. So then you would get on a bus, um, and then you would travel to Yellowstone and they created their own entrance to the park. And then you would get on Yellowstone buses that were operated by the, the park and you would do like this roundabout tour. And then, you know, they, they had options where you could either go to a different railroads entrance. So like you could go to West Yellow, like end at West Yellowstone and then go out on UP lines or one of the other places. But it was a really long route through not great roads. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a commitment and an endeavor. And obviously people need places to stay when they're traveling so far. This isn't, uh, you know, a few day trip. I imagine people are taking at least a week to go out here and see Yellowstone. So one big effort in getting people out to the parks was the construction of the Gallatin Gateway Inn near Yellowstone Park in 1927. So can you share the strategy they built here that would be used at other national parks too? Sure, so like I mentioned, the Milwaukee Road was at a disadvantage to begin with because they were so far from the park. So what they decided to do was build a very nice, luxurious hotel um, that was in a town called Salesville, which later changed its name to the Gallatin Gateway. 
Um, so they built this like Spanish revival hotel that was really quite magnificent. I guess it was one of the more luxurious railroad hotels of its time. They built it in four months in 1927, starting in February, which it was a very large hotel. Like they had to build it so fast that they were like lighting fires to make the walls dry faster. Um, but like a huge kind of engineering feat because they were like shoveling snow off the roof to like build it, right? Um, so they built this wonderful thing. You know, it had a huge dining room, 350 people. It had a ballroom for hundreds to dance in it. Um, but interestingly enough, it only had 20 some rooms in it. And this is because the Olympian and the Colombian passenger trains were overnight trains, sometimes two nights, mm -hmm. depending on which one you took. So you would either arrive in the morning and then you would have lunch, right? And then you would go on your tour of Yellowstone or you arrive in the afternoon and you didn't really have to stay there. The only people that stay there were the people leaving through the park to go usually back out to the West Coast. Then you would stay in right there. A lot of other railroad companies did this. The Great Northern reached Glacier National Park in 1893 and built a beautiful lodge. Uh, the Santa Fe to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Um, and not only did they, they build this, this hotel, the Santa Fe also you know, led national efforts to make the Grand Canyon a national park. And the Milwaukee Road Company was the first to, to build a place for people to stay? Not in Yellowstone. Okay. No, no. They, they were always like the last. <laughs> Unfortunately, the, the Milwaukee Road did a lot of great things, yeah. but sometimes they were, they were the last company to finish a transcontinental route. They were the last company to establish a route into Yellowstone, and it actually never did that well. You know, just like some figures in 1925, there was 44, 45,000 people arriving by rail into Yellowstone like a fraction of these were Milwaukee Road because the other railroads had like such like a better position, you know, like West Yellowstone is like 18 miles from the border of, of Yellowstone National Park. So they tried to capitalize, it didn't quite work out, but the hotel is still there. So at least we got this like nice bit, like piece of history that's still there. Absolutely, and we have some, some prints of the inn here that you're gonna show me in a bit, but when you're researching all of this and you're, you're looking at the, the growth and some of the challenges that the railroad is facing, what stands out to you about the Milwaukee Road? The Milwaukee Road concerning like passenger traffic, what made it such a fantastic railroad was its innovation. At some points in the service, the Milwaukee Road had, had claimed to have the best passenger service there with meaning like very uh, uh, punctual trains. Um, it developed its own roller bearings in, in the trucks, which the cars sit on, um, that were extremely smooth. Like in the 1930s, regularly trains between Chicago and St. Paul were traveling 100 plus miles an hour in the 1930s. And they claimed that the faster it went, the smoother it goes. Um, so like, you know, they, like, they would have like, you know, they did things where they like, they put a cup of coffee like on the table and the trains like going 100 miles an hour in the coffees, not falling out of the cup, yeah. right? So, uh, and it did a lot of other really innovative things um, like its electrified line out west. So when people were arri arriving into Three Forks, Montana, like going to the Yellowstone, chances are the train was being pulled by electric locomotive. Um, so it had, when it was built and for quite some time after, the longest electrified route through the mountains, 
electricity played a huge role. I mean, it, it allowed the railroad to A, reduce operating costs, um, but it also, you've got these nice electric engines that don't throw off ash and mm -hmm. steam and dust and were much quieter than our steam locomotives. So it, it was really innovative in, in how it did that. And uh, especially when we're looking at the Western expansion of, of the railroad to electrify hundreds of miles of line is one thing, but you have to get the electricity. So they were like using companies to build dams mm. to supply the electricity. So this was like a huge undertaking. And some would say one of the reasons why the Milwaukee Road ended up going bankrupt. But. That's another story. <laughs> yeah, another one we could revisit another time. So you're currently here in Milwaukee, but you actually grew up in Wyoming. So in what we're talking about today, how does it feel to be able to pull out these primary documents here in the Midwest and still have a way to connect to Wyoming and, and out west through what you do here? You know, because, you know, especially Yellowstone, in, in that it's a national treasure, you know, like you see it pop up all over the place. Um, so it's like, it's kind of really exciting for me, like when I pull out like all those brochures of, of Yellowstone and like describing a place where I grew up. And I'm like, oh, even out here in Milwaukee, like you can't get away from like the grandeur and the beauty um, of some of our national parks and in particular Wyoming. Awesome. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining me today and for pulling out all these great documents. I look forward to exploring. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Greg Comley is a special collections librarian at the Milwaukee Public Library. You can see tons of old pictures, documents, and brochures from Milwaukee Road at wuwm.com. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or a conversation that you'd like to hear on the air, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. Don't forget, you can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. We'll take one more break and then learn about some new restaurants in Milwaukee and some old favorites that have recently closed. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. And I ride 16 coaches long. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. As the summer is nearing its end, many of us are trying to soak in the good weather while we can. And what better way to do that than by checking out a new local restaurant? As the dining editor for On Milwaukee, Lori Frederick always has her eye on what's happening in Milwaukee's food scene. She joins Like Effect's Joy Powers to talk about some exciting new restaurants that have opened over the past few months and some beloved eateries that have closed. So there are, as always, a lot of restaurants that have opened this summer, uh, and there are unfortunately a number that have closed as well. We're going to start with a restaurant that is really more than a decade in the making. It's uh, Sushi Yuki, is that right? Sushi Yuki, yes. I first reported on Sushi Yuki in 2016, wow. and this is a couple, um, Jin Ko and Jenny Kim, who also own a sushi restaurant in Waukesha called Sakura. And they bought the old Puente Barber Shop in Bayview. And the intention was to turn it into a little sushi place. At that time, Bayview had no sushi. People were excited. There were signs on it that said, sushi soon, sushi soon, you know, for a good long time. 
They bought the building. They found out that it was not suitable to be remodeled. The building was old and worn and just not suitable for the remodel that they envisioned. So they ended up raising it, which, of course, the building was raised, I think, around 2019. (laughs) Um, So this is a long time in coming. They started and got up at least the bulk of the new structure, and then the pandemic hit. And from there, it was just everything slowed down, obviously, especially during that first year of the pandemic. Um, But they finally did. They got the build going. And then it was just typical delays, like, you know, permits for the patio, the patio construction, the interior, you know, all of those things. I mean, there there were a lot of questions. You know, people were constantly, oh, will this place ever open? And um, they are indeed open. And um, (laughs) so Bayview has since got, you know, there's at least one sushi restaurant that opened in Bayview um, in the meantime. But I think this will be actually a really nice addition because sushi has become very popular in Bayview. So the neighborhood is thrilled. So uh, the next one, gotta love the name, Joy Ice Cream Social. <laughs> you, you have to love the yeah. name, yes. Um, so Joy's Ice Cream Social, is it's, it's an interesting project. It's in Wauwatosa, right on North Avenue. And um, it was a little gas station for many, many years. And then it was just vacant. Finally, this ice cream concept um, came through. And it's owned by a local woman who really just thought, oh, wouldn't that be fun? joyful (laughs) for the neighborhood. And um, she is serving ice cream um, from the Madison-based, I think, ice cream shop. Tons and tons of different flavors. And um, it's it's becoming a real family space. It has a patio out front and a line, probably a block (laughs) long most of the time. So, And interesting, it's ice cream instead of of uh, custard. custard. (laughs) I, I think we're seeing more of that. I think there's a and maybe a, there's a sense that you just can't compete with, you know, the big names like Leon's and Cops. I don't know. Hard pack might be a little easier, too. So, Speaking of things that I, I think are a bit of a trend, uh, the next thing we're going to talk about, you know, it is a chain, right? It, it's a Taiwanese chain. Oh, yeah. But um, it's, Tao Ta. Tao Ta. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's doing something that has become increasingly popular here in Milwaukee, very popular around the U.S., uh, boba tea. Yes. The founder, Eddie Zeng, took a look at bubble tea, you know, which is now popular across the world. And when it was invented in the 80s and 90s, it was kind of invented to be a fast thing. It was made from powdered milk and ingredients that, you know, could kind of be thrown together or sold as mixes. And he's like, coffee has gotten crafty. Why can't we do this with tea and bubble tea? So he created a brand that focused on quality. They use loose leaf Freshly brewed loose leaf teas and all of their bubble tea. They make their own boba, so it doesn't have artificial coloring, flavoring in it. They use fresh fruit. They use fresh milk. And then they added a few things, you know, to up up the ante. I mean, the location on Farwell here in Milwaukee has over 70 options for tea and bubble tea. <laughs> I mean, which includes flavors. And they have something called a mojito um, bubble tea, which is like um, fruit tea with fresh mint and lime, and then effervescence from like sparkling water, mm. makes a really good pairing for the other thing they serve, <laughs> which is um, Korean fried chicken wings and Korean fried chicken sandwiches. Um, ultra crispy, ultra juicy, um, made to order, so you will need to wait. It's about 15 <laughs> minutes for chicken. And then if for dessert, you can opt for a Hong Kong style 
egg waffle or bubble waffle, um, which they serve in a couple of original ones, and then um, matcha and cocoa waffles. So an interesting exploration of a, of a lot of different parts of East Asia. And, and trendy <laughs> foods, kind of yeah. all in one, yeah, all in one space. Yep. Staying in, I, I guess, the Pacific as it were. The next restaurant we're going to talk about, uh, people may be familiar with as a pop-up. Now they're going to have a brick and mortar. Uh, it's a restaurant called Pufferfish. Yes. And <clears throat> kind of kind of a bar that happens to have food. But um, J.C. Cunningham is the mastermind, I guess, behind this pop-up. He was working for the folks at Lost Whale. They were looking for things to keep people engaged with the Last Whale brand, especially during the pandemic. So they started these outdoor patio pop-ups. And Puffer Fish was his inspiration. And it was basically tropical drinks, um, a lot of classics, but a lot of newfangled ones, too, um, became very, very popular. Um, existed as a pop-up for a while, and then they partnered with Hotel Metro um, last summer. They had this seventh-floor rooftop patio that had really just been unused. So they partnered with Pufferfish to activate that patio space. There's a little bar up there and kind of a private event space, and it went over so well that they basically are there permanently, or at least for as long as they would like to be. Really fun experience, um, well executed. So a lot of great new places to try. Of course, unfortunately, there are a number of amazing places that are also closing. This is a place I really liked. Um, I was sad to see it go. Meet on the street. Oh, meet on the street. Yeah, this um, sister-brother team, really, really young business owners who effectively brought Filipino food to Milwaukee. And they started with a food truck, which they expanded into a fleet <laughs> of food trucks, serving all sorts of different things from um, the Leishant pork to skewers of meat and the pancit pasta. That is classic in Filipino cuisine. But even after nine years, I don't have a lot of background, actually, about this closing. Um, but I do know that they, they took a, a contract with the Milwaukee Public Museum to kind of handle the cafeteria there. And then shortly thereafter, they announced they were shutting down the business. Um, I have to assume that maybe it was too much um, yeah. taken on all at once. But the light at the end of the tunnel is that one of their employees actually decided that the concept shouldn't die. So they got permission to start a similar business. Um, so there is a Filipina cochina, <laughs> which is a new food truck um, serving kind of very, very similar food. Um, and the whole purpose really was to carry on the legacy that Meat on the Street started. So kind of a happy ending to a sad story. A similar kind of uh, long-time restaurant in the area that I was a little surprised to see go. It, it's Red Light Ramen. Yeah. And, I mean, Red Light was not the first ramen shop in the city, but among the first. And um, when they opened, it was a big deal because it, was, it started as this late-night pop-up concept where after um, Justin Carlyle's Ardent would close, it would transform into a little ramen shop. 
and you knew because there was a little red light that would go on, <laughs> and you know, and folks would come, and it was late night, shuffle around because it's a really small space, so it would get crowded really fast. There would be lines down the block, super fun, and eventually it evolved into having its own space next door. Effectively, Carlyle noted that costs were going up. The practicality of continuing to run this little this little spot just wasn't there. But you know, they were around for almost a decade before they before they went the other way. So, and now uh, finally, this was actually one of my favorite restaurants in Milwaukee. Uh, when you could get a table, it was <laughs> great. Yes. yes. Uh, but you know. You would be waiting a you'd be waiting a minute, and they did not take. Uh, speaking of lines, yeah, lines speaking down the of block, lines. Um, yeah, um, the Noble, which is yeah, very beloved. Um, they closed. They were open for almost twelve years, um, husband and wife team. But I think if there were twelve seats inside of their restaurant, um, which maybe doubled to twenty four in the summer when they you know rolled out the patio, they opened kind of as things were really growing up in the Walker's Point area, restaurants, like, opening there. And they put their mark on the area with kind of a a menu that is familiar items, but definitely with a twist, um, with creative names. And their menu literally changed every single day. So you would go and everything was written on a chalkboard and maybe a little, (laughs) you know, I I think if I remember correctly, they had little library cards that came with your menus and um, and at a time where it wasn't as common, they did um, brunch, but they did brunch on Mondays. So it became a trend for industry folks to go to this brunch and um, Monday brunch was wild and happy times for all the people who, <laughs> who didn't get to have brunch, you know, otherwise because they were all working. So David Crescent and April um, ran it for 12 years and their statement to the world, they, they closed pretty quietly. I think they gave notice to some of their regulars kind of in person and then just closed. And they did issue a statement later that just said that after living through the pandemic, they really reprioritized kind of what they wanted and that you know, giving up the restaurant was in their best interest. So I trust that people know <laughs> what's best for them. And so I wish them luck, whatever they're going to do. For sure. Well, Lori, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing all of these openings and closings. There's a lot to look forward to here in Milwaukee. Definitely. Happiness, sadness, (laughs) everything in between. (laughs) And lots, lots of good things to eat regardless. Lori Frederick is the dining editor for On Milwaukee, and she spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. At WUWM.com, you can find their previous conversation about restaurant openings and closings this year in Milwaukee. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn about a new childcare model that's opened in Milwaukee to meet the needs of remote workers. It combines a co-working space with an on-site daycare. Plus, we'll look at a new book on a family's personal struggles with mental illness during an era of silence. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.